Hi, this is Stephen Ambrose, Senior Pastor at Wapak Naz. I want to welcome you to the Wapak Naz podcast. We hope and pray that this message goes deep into your DNA, is encouraging, relevant to your life, a means for you to engage with God and experience His love, and moves you to impact your world. We at Wapak Naz believe firmly that you matter to God. We are glad that you are taking the risk to engage with Him today. Wapak Naz is love people loving people to Jesus, and it takes people to partner with us to be on mission and bring this message to our community, the region, and the world. If you would like to financially partner with Wapak Naz to love people to Jesus, join us by going to our website at wapaknaz.org and becoming a financial partner. We thank you, we pray for you, we love you, and enjoy the message. We here at, at Wapak Naz, we, we believe that worship doesn't stop with the last chord, that worship is lifestyle. Worship is all of our life, and so um, worship is part of moves and infiltrates and even into our finances. So we want to say thank you so much for um, you stepping into obedience and, and honoring the Lord with your finances, with your first fruits. Um, there are ways to do that here. Uh, you can go online to wapaknaz.org uh, backslash give. You can set that account up. Uh, you can give on text, text to give as well. And then we have those wonderful joy boxes at the exits because God loves a cheerful giver. And so uh, I appreciate you guys doing that. And um, with that said, I, I'd like to call my friend, my new friend, uh, his name is Noah, by the way. Oh, his name is Noah. <laughs> In case you didn't know. And uh, brother, I'm excited. Uh, very excited that uh, you're bringing the word today. And uh, Noah's been been uh, just tapping into the Lord all week. Uh, actually, last couple weeks. He's been working last couple weeks. And uh, I just want to say thank you for... Uh, being the willing and obedient servant that you are, and uh, I'd like to pray for you, man. Is that all right? That's fine by me. That's fine by you? All right. Heavenly Father, I thank you for my friend, and uh, Lord God, I ask that you fill him with your spirit. Lord, may he speak with humility, but also with the authority that you have given him. May he speak with care and love compassion Lord may he be quick on his feet but whether he fumbles and bumbles or stumbles that's okay I know he's prayed up I know he's studied up and I know you're going to be lifted up and for us in this room and those listening online I ask that that we are willing people to listen to what you have to say through your scripture May your scripture not just inform us, but may it transform us. Please, you need more people that are transformed than just informed. May he experience you just as he's up here, Lord. I love you, and I trust you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Appreciate you, brother. <sighs> it's good to be with you. Now, whether Stephen made the biggest mistake of his life or the best decision of his ministry, you'll find out in about 45 minutes or so. Uh, so, we are in the third week of our sermon series, Jesus Never Said That. And so the first week, um, the statement was, you do you, so do what makes you happy, right? And Stephen preached on uh, how Jesus never said that. In fact, if you find, I dare you to go find it in the scriptures because it's not there. 
But what Jesus, in fact, said was, come follow me. And so second week, we went on to, you get what you deserve. And so Matthew had that beautiful imagery with him of uh, his story, his personal story, and his personal wrestling with um, the 9-11 incident. And man, that one just floored me. Uh, I, I don't remember it. I'm sure many of you remember it. I was just a little kid, so I don't even remember it. But not even remembering it, that story really impacted me. And so now we're on our third week of Jesus Never Said That. And the statement today that Jesus never said, God will give you, God will never give you more than you can handle. Whew. Whew. I don't know if you've ever said that one. I have. Uh, I'm going to caution you today. I want to give a word of caution. We're heading into some deep waters. Uh, this is not for the faint of heart. This is not, um, Paul calls it, we are not moving, we are moving on to meat, not milk. In one of his letters, Paul talks about how he wants his believers to get off of spiritual milk and move on to meat. We're moving into the meat today. Um, in Leonard Sweet's book, uh, Leonard Sweet is a preacher. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's a rather famous preacher. Um, he wrote a book called giving blood, and it's all about preaching. And in this book, Giving Blood, he talks about uh, how pastors, when they give the word, need to be ready to bleed on the altar. And I was, I was, you know, this is one of those sermons that I've given a lot of sermons, but this is one that I've really struggled with. Um, and Stephen, I was talking with Stephen in his office, and I had this illustration ready to go, and he said, yeah, it's, it's a good illustration. But are you playing it safe? I thought, no. It's like, you need to be, and this is what triggered me onto that book, because I've read the book for uh, class, and he said, you need to be ready to bleed on the altar. And so with your permission, I'm going to bleed on the altar today. We're going to bleed together. Because this is a sermon that has wounded me. So let's back, backtrack in my life. Uh, I was raised in the church. I was born in Toledo. Um, my family's actually here. Uh, so I was born in a Christian household. Nazarene church all my life. 21 years going Nazarene strong. <laughs> Heck yeah. Uh, so uh, I was raised in these traditions that I hold ever so dear. Um, these beliefs, these practices. And they did affect me in many good ways. But as I got into high school, you know, things change. You want to fit in. You want to be with the in crowd. Uh, I didn't always fit in very well. In fact, I, I felt like I never really did fit in. I've always hated high school. I hated my high school experience. And uh, I often, uh, there's a villain in Batman. I'll give you an illustration. There's a villain in Batman. His name's Two-Face Harvey Dent. And I wish Matthew was here because he'd be like, yes! 
Batman. He, did you notice he wore the Batman belt last week? I, I did catch up on that. Um, but I don't know how well you know Batman, uh, but there is a villain in Batman. His name's Two-Face Harvey Dent, and the reason they call him Two-Face is because uh, half of his face is deformed, and then the other half is like this pristine human face, right? I don't know if you saw the 2000, I think it was like 2008 movie, The Dark Knight, and like when I first saw that, it freaked me out because you see it, and the CGI is like really good, so like half of his face is burnt, and then half of it's like just regular human flesh, and when he like first turns his face to show you it, it's really freaky. Um, it is. Uh, so maybe if you don't get this one, we'll go back to wrestling. So this, is, this has been an illustration that's run through. I might as well keep it. Right? It's like heroes and heels, like Matthew talked about last week. Like there's bad guys in wrestling, and there's good guys in wrestling, and you want the good guy to beat the bad guy. I felt like a hero and a heel. I felt like Two-Face Harvey Dent um, throughout my whole high school experience. See, because on one hand... I would go to church, and I'd act a certain way in church, and I'd just say the right things, and it became even worse when I uh, expressed my call to ministry, and that just worsened, because now there's like a new added pressure, right, of certain things you got to do and certain behaviors you got to show. Um, meanwhile, behind closed doors, in my own private time, I looked at myself and I just didn't see that guy. I knew I wasn't that guy deep down. And there, there's a lot of different reasons for that. Um, but uh, the num number one reason probably was uh, during this time, and I, I hope you all extend some grace to me. Um, I had a pretty hard struggle with pornography. That was, that was hard, uh, because on, the, on, this, on this one side, I felt like I should be a good churchgoer, and on this other side, there was something I was doing in my own private time that just wasn't reflecting that, and so it's really pull, pulled on my soul, um, and it seemed like the more I tried to handle it, the worse it got. If you've ever quicksand, it's like quicksand. The more I struggled, like if you've ever been in quicksand, the more you struggle, try to get out of that quicksand, the further and further you fall, right? Right, that's the idea. So you need someone there to pull you out because if you try to just climb out of the quicksand, the more you're going to fall eventually to your death. Um, and I found there's a lot of biblical characters like, if you look through the Bible, there's a lot of characters that kind of envelop this idea of quicksand. Like, the more they struggle, the more they just seem to, to fall further and further. And I was, I was looking for uh, scripture for this sermon. Uh, Naomi popped up right into my mind. So that's where we're going to be. We're going to be in Ruth chapter 1. And uh, I'm going to read verses 1 through 13, and then we're going to jump down to verses 20 through 21. And this is what Ruth chapter 1 says. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. 
So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. And the names of their two sons were Mahlon and Kilian, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab to live there. All right, so we got some early trouble in Naomi's story, right? There's a famine in the land. She has to move, right? And what's interesting about uh, the famine is it happens in Bethlehem, and the Hebrew word Bethlehem, the city that that's named, it literally means house of bread, so there's a famine in the house of bread, right? So even Naomi's, like, her home's identity is now lost because the house of bread isn't producing bread, right? That's what it's supposed to be, right? And so, you know, Naomi has to move from her home. She's leaving the safety and security of a land that she has once known, that she knows very well, the happy, happy memories of raising her family there, and now she's going to be a foreigner in a strange land, a land she has no familiarity with, most likely. A land that has a completely different political system, a completely different religion, and completely different cultural practices. And they likely know nobody where they are moving to. Right? And so let's keep reading. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malone and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. And so this is the point in the story where everything, you wouldn't know it, in the story so far, but everything comes completely crashing down for Naomi. Like, this is her awful, no good, very bad point in the story. <laughs> Naomi's husband and her two sons die, right? They're dead. Gone. But what does this mean for Naomi? Well, this means that Naomi's safety and security is gone now. See, because at this time... It's very hard to be an independent woman without your sons and without your husband. Right? There's deep importance for these men in Naomi's life. Not just relationally, but also physically. Right? They provide for her physical needs. They are the cultural and spiritual center of her family. Or we're supposed to be. And now they're gone. And what's even worse is they haven't left anyone to pass on their name, right? Naomi's kids don't have any sons. And so there's this concept in uh, biblical literature. Dr. Van Zant, one of my professors at MVNU, actually keyed me in on this. Uh, there's, in, bibli in biblical literature, you can be dead, like you're not here, like you're gone from the earth. Or you can be dead dead. That's literally how it's formed, is dead dead. So... Dead is like, I'm gone, I'm dead, I'm not here anymore. Dead, dead is, I'm gone, I'm dead, I'm not here anymore. And also, my family name is not carried on. So there's no one to remember me by. My name just fades away into obscurity. And so, in this culture, 
This is horrifying. Not only is Naomi's safety and security blanket for her physical needs gone, it's really hard to be a widow during this time, in this land, in this culture. But also, there is no one now to pass on her family name. And so now the family name will be just blown into obscurity. And no one will remember them. And so let's continue. Maybe it gets better for Naomi. (laughs) When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of the people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and sent out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you and your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. And even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to two sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. And so now, Naomi's lost everything from her family, but now she has to say goodbye to the two daughters-in-law that she has come to love so dearly, right? She says, you have shown me and my husband's kindness. This isn't like one of the things where Naomi just says, go flippantly, and they go. This is deep emotional connection between these women. And you can tell because of the way the daughters-in-law react. They don't just go. They weep loudly. Their weeping is strong. They can't just stay silent. They have to yell. And they even request to go back with her, but Naomi doesn't want to take them into that situation. She knows what's going to ha- what is going to happen when she gets back to Israel. No one to provide. No one to care for. And here's the change point in Naomi's story. And it happens in verses 20 and 21. So Naomi finally returns home. She makes this journey home. Uh, Ruth actually ends up going with her, but we'll come back to that. She makes this return journey home, and the people see her off in the distance coming. And they say, can this be Naomi? The whole town exclaimed. They, don't, they weren't expecting her to come back, it seems like. And this is what she says to them in verse 20. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So, 
quick side bit. Whenever you see a name change in the Bible, like someone's name is this and then their name turns to that, make a note of that in your scriptures. That's an important point in the scripture, right? Name changes just don't happen flippantly in the scriptures, right? Abram to Abraham, Sarah, Sarai to Sarah. Often these involve God. This is like God giving people new names. Simon to Peter, right? But what's interesting here is God doesn't give Naomi this name. She gives it to herself. Right? Because Naomi means pleasant, and Mara means bitter. And so now bitterness is what has defined Naomi's situation. She cannot handle her new reality, and so she just succumbs to it. She goes, this is what I am now. So I might as well be called bitter. And I feel that verse 21 sums it up actually pretty elegantly. Um, I'll read it again. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. I don't know about you, but it doesn't seem like Naomi can handle this situation very well. It seems like the more Naomi tries to do herself, the more she just kind of sinks in her circumstances. And you can tell because of the way she changes her name, right? She changes her name to reflect her circumstance, right? That's like the final point where Naomi just kind of like sinks into the sand. And you can just watch her hole and gone, right? Nothing left. Nothing's there. So I know what you're thinking. Noah, this is about what Jesus said. Like Jesus never said that, right? Okay, I'll give you that. So let's go where Jesus did say something. Let's go where Jesus did say something. Or in fact, maybe where he did something. This is even better, because Jesus often isn't a sayer, he's a doer. Right? So turn in your Bibles to Mark chap chapter 6, verses 34 through 44. This is a story very familiar to all of us. Right, so uh, this is a rather famous passage of scripture. A lot of people know it. Uh, it's Jesus feeding the 5,000, right? So sum up the story in kind of a succinct way. Uh, so Jesus has landed. He's been in a boat. Um, this is after John the Baptist is beheaded. So Jesus kind of wants to be alone because he's mourning that loss. And so he sails the boat across the Sea of Galilee to a place called Bethsaida where he's trying to get alone. But when he gets there, um, there's a big crowd waiting for him. Because someone had seen him and then warned all the people that he was coming. So that there's this like giant crowd that is amassing there, waiting to hear from Jesus. And so Jesus sees them. And even though he wants to be alone, listen to this. Listen to what it says. When Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. 
So he began to teach them many things, right? So Jesus goes on teaching, and he's teaching for a lot of hours. I don't, never says what he talks about. We can only imagine. But we get to this point in the story where it's late, it's getting late, and the people are hungry, right? And I don't know about you, but like a crowd getting hungry, that just seems like a recipe for disaster. And so the disciples are like, well, we can't really deal with this, so Jesus, why don't we just send them away to the market? And Jesus, Jesus' answer is very interesting. He says, you give them something to eat. And watch the disciples' response. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and to spend that much on bread and give it to them? Where do the disciples' minds immediately go? How can we pull this off? Right? You're asking us, Jesus, to pull this off. We're supposed to feed all these people? That's going to take a ton of resources that we just don't have. I don't know about you, but I couldn't imagine feeding 5,000 people. That seems like a situation I couldn't handle very well. I think it's going to be hard just feeding 300 at my wedding, to be honest. Like, 5,000, I couldn't even imagine. It's not just 5,000, it's 5,000 men. It's not including the women and the children that may or may not be there. Right? With including women and children, you could be talking 7, 10, upwards of 15,000 people that need to be fed. But watch, I love this. Watch, watch, watch what Jesus does. How many loaves do you have? Go and see. He just completely like sidesteps the disciples' concern. He's just like, hang on, let's, let's go back. Don't care about that. How many loaves do we have? And when they found out, they said five pieces of bread and two fish. I don't know what, I think they could probably get more at the market with the money they already had, to be honest. More likely. And so then Jesus directs all the people to sit down on green grass. He says, the scripture says, all the people sit into groups on the green grass. And so they sat in groups of hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to all the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate until they were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. And so something else, and so watch what Jesus' response is. Jesus doesn't say, oh, this ain't going to cut it. Jesus doesn't say, oh, how am I going to do this? He looks to heaven. He gives thanks. And he breaks the bread and distributes it. And there is enough for everybody until they are satisfied. Not even just to give them one piece of fish and one piece of bread until they are physically satisfied by eating. Hmm. There's also something else. I don't know if you caught it. It's like a little innocuous kind of detail that Mark puts in. Right? He calls the crowd sheep without shepherds. 
And then he makes this a little innocuous detail. Like, you don't know why Mark would even put this detail in. It's so innocuous. They sit on green grass. Sheep without shepherd, and they sit on green grass. Um, So my mind went back to a class I had at Mount Vernon with uh, Dr. Van Ness. And he pointed this out to me once, and my mind immediately went to it. Kind of sounds like Psalm 23, doesn't it? The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green grass. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. Right? I don't know how much you know about sheep, but sheep are kind of stupid. Right? They need domestic sheep. Not like wild sheep. Wild sheep are actually kind of smart. But domestic sheep are kind of dumb. Like if you've ever seen a sheep. If they didn't have a shepherd to tend to them, they would probably die. Right? They can't be left alone. And so it's interesting to me that Mark calls the people sheep. And that the good shepherd Jesus sits them down on green grass. So I want to take a look back at the statement in light of everything we've talked about. God never gives you more than you can handle. I want you to think about that for a second. Is that actually true? Like, do we actually know what we're saying when we say this? Listen, I I get it. Most people who say this probably don't mean what this actually implies. Like, they're just trying to be nice or to be comforting or to be caring. Like, I get that. But we do need to be careful in the things we say. Because the things we say as Christians, people will often take and reflect that back on God. So what do we mean when we say, God never gives you more than you can handle? Or what does that statement actually mean, whether we're saying it or not? Here's my issue with it. If God never gives me more than I can handle, then why do I need God in the first place? Fair point? Right? It puts all the onus back on me, the individual. I got to pull it off. I got to do it. I got to handle my situations. If I got to do it all, then what's the purpose of God anyway? Right? And that's the thing, I think that's the thing that kind of ties all these sermons together, right? You do you, so do what makes you happy. Focus on yourself, do what makes you happy. You get what you deserve. Actually, I think a better statement is you get what I think you deserve. Right? I think you deserve this, so therefore you're going to get it. Man, Matthew did a great job with that sermon. I loved it so much. Um, right? So I don't need God for anything with this statement. Right? That's the implication. I can handle it myself. I can't handle things myself. I'm actually pretty bad at it. 
Do you think sheep handle things very well themselves? Sheep often get killed by themselves. Do you think Naomi handled that situation very well by herself? That situation forced her to change her name from pleasant to bitter. A complete 180-degree change. Right? So here's my question. Well, here's the question we should have. So if this statement's wrong, if God never gives us more than we can handle, then what does God actually do? Right? What's God there for? I want to turn back to Ruth. Sorry, I lost my my bookmarker. My bad. So I'm going to turn back to Ruth. Because the way God works in Naomi's story is just incredible to me. Just incredible. All right. So Naomi's first point of redemption in her story is actually Ruth, the character Ruth. Right? This is what Ruth says. Despite Naomi's situation, despite the situation she's about to head into, this is, what, this is Ruth's response. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Ruth was there, present in Naomi's situation. Right? Right? This is God's first point of redemption, right? God is my redeemer. If he doesn't give me more than I can handle, God plays the redeemer, right? And so Naomi's first point of redemption is Ruth. She doesn't refuse to leave. She refuses, she instead stays in Naomi's situation and says, It would probably be better for me to go. But I care about you so much. And I want to see you happy so much. I want to see you fulfilled so much that I am going to go into a place where I have no connections, where the culture is completely different, where she's not even sure if the people there will even accept her. Right? And she goes anyway. And then there's this whole, there's whole two chapters where it records Ruth's, the rest of Ruth's story, right? And so, just so we can get caught up, Ruth meets this guy named Boaz while she's out in the field, and then Naomi's like, hey, uh, you should get it on with Boaz. And so Ruth's like, heck yeah. And then, so all of this happens, right? Right? 
This is, this is the message version of how it went down, by the way. Um, keep it going. Thank you. Thank you, Nikki. There's one amen. Only amen in the sermon. Uh, <laughs> so, right? So Ruth stays with Naomi, stays present in Naomi's situation. And this is what happens. So Boaz and Ruth... So Boaz took Ruth, sorry. Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And when, they, when the woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, is better than seven sons who has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. And the woman living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. His father was Jesse, the father of David. Right? And so this is Naomi's ultimate redemption in the story. Her family line is now secure through the presence and the patience and the willingness of Ruth. To be with someone in their darkest moments. And notice what it says in the scripture. It doesn't say Ruth has gained a son, which I find ever so interesting. It says Naomi has gained a son. Like it's not even Naomi's kid. But what the scripture recognizes is that Obed is Naomi's redemption. What Naomi lost in the land of Moab, has been restored to her through this baby Obed, right? And through the baby and the man that Obed would be comes David, the greatest king of Israel, right? And then through David's line, we get a whole bunch of other people I'm not going to list. We get to Jesus. Our ultimate redeemer. And so this tale of redemption moves down from Naomi's story to Obed, to David, through the line of kings of Judah, all the way through the exile, straight to Jesus in the first century. I think um, there's another role that God plays here. And I want to show you, uh, I'm an art guy, I love art. I love looking at it, but only certain art. Like, I don't like modern art. Like, this is trash. So I just, like, kind of throw it away. Um, But I love the Impressionists, uh, and I love Rembrandt. But my favorite piece of artwork uh, is actually this, what's going to be on this next slide. Uh, It's by a man named Matthias Grunewald, and it shows an image I think that we've kind of lost in our kind of Protestant tradition, right? So when we look at the cross, uh, often Protestants will show that the cross is empty, and that's good, right? We're accentuating the point 
that Jesus lives and he's not on that cross anymore. Right? And that's kind of like a delineation in the Catholic tradition. But I think we miss half the picture sometimes when we don't include this. That's my favorite uh, picture of Jesus. That's my favorite. On, in uh, more ancient traditions like Eastern Orthodox and Catholicism, they'll often picture Jesus on the cross. Like you don't find the cross empty without Jesus. But even in some of those pictures, uh, I don't find them as compelling as this one, right? Because Jesus is like has this like perfect skin and perfect body, and looks like it's 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 accentuating his divinity in a sense. Um, That's how I think Jesus actually looked on the cross. Now, no one actually knows because no one was there. But man, does he look broken. Man, does he look gone. I love that picture. Right? Because it points out what Jesus actually had to go through. What actually happened, right? The, and even if you, like, often when you see pictures, de- uh, paintings depicting the crucifixion, it's often kind of bright and glorious. This one's dark. It's scary. The characters just look kind of gnarly and nasty. His body's broken. He's malnourished, and all he can do is just hang there. And so this is the second role I think God plays. The suffering Messiah. The God who understands what situation you're in. Who feels the pain of your brokenness. Because he actually felt it. the God who suffers with us. Right? So I don't know where you're at today. But I know a God who suffers. And I know a God who redeems in that suffering. And I know a God who isn't on that cross anymore. See, here we get the full picture. Because the suffering Messiah redeemed the world through that suffering. And now that cross is empty. Right, so that's, dropped it, it's fine. (laughs) Right, and so that's God's role. And that's the portrait God paints, and that's the picture God plays. So what are we to do with that? Right, that's the ultimate question. Like, I can know things, I can 
hear them in my head, but if I'm not living it out, there's really no point in me knowing it, right? Theology is faith-sinking understanding. That's what we've been doing this whole time. We've been doing a bit of theology. We've been using our faith to seek understanding of who God is. But if that faith-sinking understanding doesn't have action to it, then what we've done is no more than an academic exercise. So as image bearers of Christ-likeness, as Christians, pinpointed three things, and Stephen's going to give me a look, because I... Oh, wait. Wrong one. There it is. Prayer, presence, and provision. I kind of brainstormed these with Stephen, and he's like, man, that just sounds... It just sounds really sappy. And I'm like, yeah, well... Like the three P's, prayer, presence, provision, right? Whatever. Uh, So prayer, right? Pray now. Pray later. Because if you don't pray now, you're not going to pray later. That's my favorite statement to come out of this church. Man, I love it. Right? But it's true. Pray for your friends who are suffering. Pray for those situations that you just can't handle. Right? We have an example right there. We prayed. We suffered with. We were present in. And God has brought redemption. Right there. No cancer. Amen. Amen. True prayer is the humble acceptance that I can't live without God. I need something outside myself. I need something to connect with because I can't handle life on my own. Presence. In the same way Christ was present with us here on earth, present in our sufferings, participated in our sufferings, carried our sufferings, be present with each other. Be present in the lives of the moments when people don't understand. And often I've found that you really don't have to say anything. So don't worry about saying anything. Right? In the story of Job, when Job is suffering, his friends come to him, and for a whole week, they don't say a word. They just sit in silence. Think of how awkward that is. Right? But the trouble comes in Job's story when they start talking. Right? That's, that's the big irony. When they actually open up their mouths to say something, that's when things go awry. Right? Just be present. No one's asking you to do anything else. Provide. So you've been praying, your presence, 
But when God calls you to do something else, be ready to provide. Provide for your community, provide for others, right? And that's, that's the big thing I've noticed about Wapak Naz. You guys are ready to provide for others. And that's inspiring. As I've heard your church's story and seen how you guys are actively involved in your community. So I want to encourage you. You guys do great at these three things. I've noticed. I, I, I know sometimes, but I'm like the silent watcher who just kind of notices things as things go on in the church. But I want to tell you, I want to encourage you to keep doing these things because you're doing them really well. It's amazing. Keep being image bearers. Keep being Christians. Father, we've struggled with a hard topic today. Lord, we are called out of our individualism. We are called out of our seclusion. Out of our wanting to handle this life by ourselves to be fully restored to you, Father. And Lord, um, we've bled on the altar today. But Lord, you have noticed our sacrifice. And it has pleased you. And I want to ask if uh, anyone's feeling this, if anyone's feeling that tension, saying, yeah, this, this is me. I used to think God never could, give me, could never give me more than I could handle, but man, life's, life's just too much. Lord, I ask that you would let them know that you were there. Even when we can't see you, even when we can't feel you, you're always working through the background of our story. Lord, we love you. So I ask that as we go, we don't just sit on these words, but we do something about them. We act out our faith, and we act out our theology. Oh, Lord, you are so good. So good. And we thank you for everything that you are. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for bringing the message and the truth, the hard truth. And thanks for bleeding on the carpet. You were vulnerable. I really do appreciate you. And so, uh, folks, would you mind, would you mind standing, please? Noah brought some truth and uh, something that we must wrestle with. And I encourage you to wrestle with it. May you love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
your mind, your soul, and your strength. And will you please love your neighbor as yourself? We love you. We appreciate you. Thank you for listening to the Wapak Nas podcast. We hope you are moved deeply to step into God and the hope and future he has for you and that you are moved to be salt, light, and yeast in your community and to love people to Jesus.